Cavalcade Audio Productions presents Star Drifter, the science fiction patio book series written and read by David Collins Rivera. Book Three, Risk Analysis. Chapter Two. The nature of secure communications between national governments is quite involved. There's no magic button that puts one official's foreign counterpart many light years away up on a comm screen for a friendly chat. An extensive corral of reliable star jump enabled vessels, either manned or automated, must be maintained right at a system's jump point. Each of them are kept in continual standby mode, ready and waiting for any diplomatic or military missives that must go out. In a modern context, these interdimensional transits are continuous, since there's always something two neighboring powers need to talk about. There are standard protocols, therefore, on both sides of any given border for facilitating and expediting governmental communications. It's how such things as lightning-fast deals surrounding misplaced property can possibly be organized. It's how all the logistics are smoothed out, and how all the people the powers that be want involved in such meetings can be named, summoned, and assigned priority berths in a timely fashion. And it was how, within eight days of my return to the Alliance, I was on my way back to corporate space. I smelled the lingering ozonic scent of cold passage long before waking up. It was a comfort, an odor I had come to associate with travel, with moving, and movement was life. I dozed, or so it seemed, because I had a vaporous little dream concerning a ship I didn't know and a vidstar I couldn't make out, but they were one in the same somehow. The ozone was her perfume. In my mind, I was witnessing it all from within one of those awful refrigerant sleep boxes you could still find on some of the cheaper ferries over a noble space. I could see and smell right through the white enameled metal. It made sense in the dream, but by the time I opened my eyes, it was all just fading shadows. Blinking stupidly in the subdued light, I listened to murmuring voices that drifted from somewhere forward. I closed my lids deliberately after a bit, rapidly moving my eyes in the predefined pattern that brought my retinals online. The wrist comp was in my locker nearby, so all I had was optical data for the moment. I was on my back, staring at a few segments of the dark polinium roll-top lid, now retracted, 
that covered my bunk whenever suspended animation was required. An innovation in compact travel, integrating a cold passage unit into a crew member's sleeping space was very slick indeed. The ship was special on a number of fronts, and the aggressive knowledge that I was part of a mission with international ramifications, even in the midst of freeze-tube confusion, fading fast, brought me to a very, shall we say, professional frame of mind. Regardless of mental faculties or work ethics, my limbs weren't responding well yet. It was too soon to get up, but I wanted to anyway. I'd crossed far more light years via cold passage than I had by waking trips over the course of my career, and most of that was going to and from interviews, scrambling after vague appointments, and dashing across vacuum in order to make call times. Actual work constituted only a small percentage of my career, travel-wise. In fact, I was looking at the million light-year mark coming up soon. That and hard credit would buy me a cup of joe anywhere. They were all awake up there, talking easily. It sounded mission-related. That struck me as rude, not waiting for the licensed gunner and the crews to join them before starting on the job. But I wasn't going to complain. Getting up with a crabby attitude was hardly endearing. Anybody who'd ever worked as a spacer or traveled much between the stars had invariably shipped with people like that. The eternal goal was not to be one of them. My head was a little poundy, and I felt dehydrated, but otherwise this had been an easy one. Eight weeks frozen, combined subjective and real-time. That was 48 weeks of life support saved on when you added everybody up. That gave our mission an extended action life, as the phrase went. Assuming, of course, everything had gone to plan while we'd slept. Mavis and Chris were supposed to always revive at the same time, with the captain of Shady Lady going off to sea to her vessel and the status of our mostly automated journey, while the mission leader saw to his people. In point of fact, this should have been the second time they'd both been revived by computer systems, with a quick spell of consciousness for a day or so right after arriving from Star Jump. This, so as to be sure we were on target and undetected, way out there on the edge of the star system. At that time, and at Chris's discretion, he could have revived any of us if he saw fit. The intended plan, though, had been to also wake up one or both of the sensor specialists in order to take a closer look around. Assuming there was nothing amiss, they would all then re-enter Cold Passage and wait until the ship traveled, mostly ballistically, to a point near the solar orbit of PS2GG, the gas giant, much deeper in system. We should have now been on the far side of the primary from its only natural satellite of note, so as to be in a position to creep around the star and observe. Our bunks were aligned on both sides of a cramped companionway, interspersed with personnel and equipment lockers, as well as control panels for various ship systems. Aft a bit was a wide spot that opened onto the ship's sole exterior hatch on port side, with the fresher opposite on starboard. Further back, the companionway terminated in two small spaces with lockable hatches, engineering and gunnery. To the fore was a larger multi-purpose space designed for meetings and mission prep, 
as well as rec room and relaxation duties, meal prep and consumption, and whatever else we needed. A round central table could be raised from the floor, and chairs for it could be unlocked from a rack on the bulkhead. It made for cheek-to-jowl conferences and intimate dining. A small but very capable Tri-D was installed here, so this space was mostly given over to SS1 and SS2. The holographic display made for an advanced interface to the impressive suite of passive and active sensors packed into Shady Lady. This tool allowed various data perspectives to be presented and studied, including an animated system map that I could see John reach up and manipulate with precision. Beyond the common room was the cockpit. One seat. Mavis's duty station. As captain, the entire ship was her responsibility, but most everything was automated and she'd have little to do elsewhere, if all went well. Crammed into every conceivable spot between these places were access panels, control pads, and storage lockers of various kinds. These compartments contained such things as pressure suits, frozen and dehydrated meals, emergency medical equipment, specialist gear, extra parts for the ship, extra flight suits for the crew, and a whole lot more. With a slow, rocking effort, I managed to sit up on my bunk, very nearly bumping my forehead on the roll-top lid, still partially extended and begging me to attack it with my face. A look up the companionway showed everyone sitting or standing around the table, except Mavis, whose shiny head I could see further on. She turned this way and that, scanning instruments. At least one cable draped down from above, plugged into her skull. A series of ghost-like holographic images of scrolling computer code and maps hovering over the table in the common room made it a little hard to see her. Stina, sitting there and interacting with the holograms, was facing aft. She noticed me getting up and stared long enough to draw John's attention. Hey, he offered. A few of the others looked back and said the same. Hey, I replied. Everything cool? Yeah, Chris called, leaning over from the side so his head bobbed into view. Looks okay. Clean up and come get something to eat. That sounded good. I pushed to my feet and toddled back to the fresher. The shower was the best thing ever, and I felt a heck of a lot better after a pulsing jet of hot water, simultaneously energizing and relaxing the way a good shower should be. In a few minutes, I was less like a dead thing. Once in a clean jumpsuit, I made a quick stop at gunnery to power up systems and get diagnostics running. I wanted to do a full hardware check, which always took time. Then I went forward, stopping along the way at a locker. I fished out my wrist comp and walked into the common room, fiddling with it. Dieter wasn't present now, though I'd seen him in here when I woke up. He was back in his engineering closet, and I was assured that it really was one, so there was enough space to get around the table. I fished out a frozen meal of scrambled whatevers and popped it in the reheater. I also filled a cup with some Vosserman, a brand of nutrient water which the ship had on tap. 
There were various flavors available, ranging from orange chemical spill all the way up to purple gym socks. At least that's how I always thought of them. But I had wicked dry mouth, so I still wasn't complaining. How you doing? Chris asked as I bumped around behind. Meals, coffee, and data pads were spread on the table, and it looked like they'd been up for a while. Getting there, getting there, I mumbled. Injection went smoothly? Looks like it, he replied, glancing at the map that Stina had overhead. We're undetected, she confirmed, doing a spreading action over our heads on a timeline that appeared in the Tri-D. It represented ship movements in the system, which Shady Lady had passively monitored over the past few weeks while we lay frozen, crawling furtively into the stellar well. Then that masking tech on the star jump engine really works? I asked, quite impressed. Yep, Chris put in, digging for a report on his data pad, which he then turned over to me. Though we're lucky we didn't pop in much closer to anything. The ship's wake is greatly dampened, but it's not gone completely. It was the brief he'd written some 40 days previously when we first arrived on the outer edge of the star system. We had returned to the normal universe on the outer edge of 21611B at over 100 million kilometers from the nearest manned vessel, yet only 10 million from a nav buoy. Neither one picked up the ship's graviton discharge, which is an indicator of shifting to or from jump space, nor had monitored communications traffic revealed any sign that we'd been noticed. Between this quiet arrival and the advanced stealth shielding that the ship sported, topped off with a special black paint job over the exterior armor that absorbed over 99% of visible light, we were rather hard to spot. Shady Lady's thrusters were on the slow side, due to a smart pre-cooling system that ejected reaction mass at the exact current temperature of the ambient micromatter thrown off by the natural action of the system primary surrounding the ship at that particular moment. The mass itself was scattered widely by some clever spreading system I didn't understand, except to know that this was expressly why we were so slow. But slow was good. Fast got you noticed. Chris's report stated that, in addition to Mavis, he'd had SS-1 wake up too and perform a detailed passive sweep of the jump point, noting a few vessels coming and going. One of those entering the system had been a Linebreaker-class security cruiser. Seeing my expression, Chris said, Yeah, you noticed that? The Linebreaker's the most advanced warship in space, I replied with a shake of the head and feeling daunted. Half the size of any ship in the Alliance doing the same job and twice as powerful. I don't think they even have more than two of them, they're so expensive. They don't, he replied. But, uh, Stina, bring up the ASR for day 299. Check this out. SS2 brought up the automated sensor report for the day in question, now over two weeks old, which covered a period of time when Shady Lady was yet halfway to our current orbit. Everyone aboard was frozen down at that time. The exit cone highlighted above our heads was unmistakable. Is that another line breaker leaving, or the same one? It's a different one, he replied. Its military transponder put it as a uh, wild card. 
The other one, which is still here, is called Liquidator. The two most powerful military vessels of their type, anywhere, and the handshake had them tag-teaming in this very star system. So it's a clear violation of the treaty. I don't know about that, John put in with a flick of his finger at the image. He drew down a long list of graviton cones, cross-referenced with transponder IDs, all sorted by date. Fifteen arrivals and seventeen departures since we got here. Only three vessels of size have had military profiles. The two cruisers and one smaller patrol ship. Tons of couriers have been coming and going, though, some of which are team. Eighty-eight percent of open comm traffic is without any mil specs. Stina added, laying another file of statistics over the holographic list. Hey, do you mind? John asked her shortly, swiping it back out of the way. He highlighted one of the jump cones on his display and opened up its details for everyone to see. Its identifying beacon showed a familiar style. Cargo ship? Chris asked. Yeah. Some of these graviton profiles are unclear, but the corresponding transponder IDs are all for medium freighters in the Sanjin hauling fleet. Montero has millions of those things all over space. We have the same class coming and going at least a dozen times. Not all one ship, surely. Chris punched up the freighter specs on his data pad, which I'd given back. No, the IDs are all different. And Team has its own haulers, I added. So, there must be a station here. Civvy freighters like those need docking facilities for cargo transfer. There's a high dock out by the jump point for the sake of the couriers, Chris observed. But these cargo haulers have been making deliveries deeper into the well. He swiped another file overhead, which only added to the mid-air muddle. A carefully annotated profile of a space station appeared. Size was hard to tell right off, but it was clearly big and had a wide ring with a very capable-looking docking hub at its center. This picture was from an image gallery composed of several thousand telescopically enhanced optical sensor captures that Shady Lady had obtained as we slept. In this particular shot, bright sunlight played off metallic curves and angles almost artistically. It was tagged as being a T-22VZ Wayfarer-class multi-purpose deep space station named Mylag Vernier. It was a member of the extensive industrial and colonial line built and shipped galaxy-wide by the massive Mylag company here in corporate space. Lagrange Point 2, between the primary and PS2GG, John said. I thought this system was unincorporated, I asked no one in particular. Is that a permanent station? Permanent civilian station, he clarified, then drew my attention to the specs for the thing off to one side, and even tapped an entry to highlight it. A wayfarer. Aren't those star jump capable? A slow engine, right? Yes, Stina answered quickly, as if making an effort to be included. Most owners uninstall the drive later on and sell it as used. I looked at the specs and the accompanying hologram above the table while they compared notes back and forth. This was no small operation. 
There appeared to be 42 jump-capable vessels in system now, not counting ourselves or the station. Currently, only one was military, Wildcard having left a week before. I accessed Liquidator specs on my risk comp, scrolling through the particulars until I found what I was after. Okay, that cruiser carries 20 support craft, including 10 fighters. It's like a small base all on its own. It is, Stina agreed, running a search over the image above the table for a particular set of files. A moment later, she opened up the comm traffic record. She had to drill down quite a bit and then do another, more detailed search on the lists that remained, but she finally opened up a long series of gibberish entries. These are encrypted, but I think they're from fighter boats. Have we cracked that yet? Chris asked, turning to John. Oh, yeah, sorry, he replied, changing the code into clear text. It was all the back-and-forth communications of the military vessels. Shady Lady broke their code a few weeks ago, but take a look at this. He then opened up another window on top of Stina's in order to get an update on the decryption process of a dedicated anti-cipher machine installed before launch. This was a piece of advanced spy tech, the like of which I'd only ever heard about, and it was fully integrated into the rest of the sensor analysis hardware. Where Meerschaum had laid their hands on the thing was anybody's guess. SS-1 and SS-2 were the only ones with the authority and the codes, and for that matter the skill, to use it, but they had the output piped to the Tri-D. Letters, digits, and other odd characters flew by, with a few here and there staying locked in position. What is it? Chris queried, studying the nonsense code with wrinkled brows. Some of the comm chatter coming and going between the station and different civvy support craft. It uses a 15,000 character key. That kind of encryption is beyond state of the art. I've cracked similar stuff in lab tests, but this is the first time I've ever seen it used in the field. Top secret communications, then? I asked. Above top secret, I'd say. It's even more secure than what the military ships are using. We were all quiet for a long time, pondering that. Well, I ventured at last, this is either a research operation or a manufacturing one. Nothing else makes sense. They do have a military presence, Chris observed. Not a build-up, though, John said. It's more like guard duty. One ship, no matter how advanced, isn't enough to secure a star system, I stated. Your food's getting cold. Chris mentioned offhandedly. The non-sequitur throwing me off a moment, I started eating automatically. Or rather, while pondering. It's not a factory. It's not a factory, Chris and I said almost at once. Me through a mouthful of scrambled faux eggs, him through a deep tunnel of thought. The others looked surprised, while Mavis, up front and following it all without comment, snorted a laugh. What could they possibly be working on that requires a top-of-the-line military ship for security? Chris asked, no one in particular. I just nodded and swallowed, pointing at him with my spork. They're building something that needs parts, and if the station got here on its own, then they aren't still working on that. So, then it's not a violation of the treaty? John concluded. 
If it's research, then what we're doing here is industrial espionage. Mirsham will have to delete all the data we've gathered. We should leave, Stina put in blandly. We all just looked at her, even Mavis, who had twisted in her seat. It was, after all, an essential conclusion. Then we turned to our ML, who just glanced back from one to the other of us for a long time. I think she's right, I said in the silence. I'm curious, too, but if we're sure they aren't violating the treaty, we have no grounds or right to be here anymore. Yeah, but are we sure? He replied questioningly, as if the prospect of turning tail was abhorrent. I knew how he felt, but we were operating on the edge of the law as it was. I needed a work reference from UH, not legal hassles. I don't actually have a problem with staying for a while, John put in while switching views on the tri -D. He brought up an overlay of the system, including orbital trajectories for all the objects Shady Lady had been tracking these past weeks. A large yellow ball, representing the local star, sat in the middle, with a smaller ball for the gas giant in orbit around it. A whole bunch of circular and elliptical lines designating all the vessels in system radiated outward to various distances. Each of these was marked with the name and call sign picked up from their transponders. The team cruiser was about halfway inside the system's gravity shadow, a fair distance from the station. Our own ship was highlighted in red. Is this current? Chris asked. Yep. Looking for something in particular? Run it chronologically in reverse, can you? I want to see what the other line breaker was doing when it was here. Stina and John knocked hands, reaching up to respond to the request, conflicting gestures confusing the display and zooming it back through a week of time into a close-up of space near the primary. A broken vector line appeared on a date marked as five days previous. It was gone again when the display settled further back on seven days. He asked me, all right? But those are my routines, Stina told him with a blank stare. I should explain what's going on. No, as SS2, you should prepare your material for presentation and then let SS1 handle it. Me. Somebody, Chris interrupted. This shift, if you can? Irritated, John held up his hands in a gesture for her to go ahead. No, it's okay, she replied and sat still, hands in her lap. She looked passive. SS1 sighed then moved the display back to the way it was, setting it on an automatic rewind and plugging in data from the collected automated surveillance results. It showed ships coming and going, with frequent stops at the station by the cargo vessels. When our ship arrived, Wildcard was already here, though it left soon after Liquidator showed up. That's all of it since we jumped in, John pronounced, setting it to move forward again. Can you bring it back five days? I asked. There was, I don't know, something weird. John did it, but then I had to search around the system map for a while in order to find what it was that the mixed-up hand gestures from our two sensor specials had displayed for only a second. Okay, here. A single spacecraft's vector. 
The only transponder note for it was the name, Jaybird. No call signs, no vessel class listing. It started at the station, then moved out into a solar orbit, traveling about one quarter of the radius around the star. Then the vector simply stopped. Is that a glitch? Chris asked. No, uh... Reluctantly, he looked to Stina, who had been giving him a gruff face. Or maybe not, I wasn't sure. This interested her, and she took over. It's probably a gap in the data, but it's not stating that it is. Did it blow up? I asked. A missile test, maybe? No, SS2 replied, dropping menus and looking at the underlying data in list form. There would be special notations for that. Well, whatever, I concluded after a few long seconds. I just thought it was odd. It's not worth a lot of effort. No, Chris put in. Keep looking. I want to know what that was. So the two of them waved at the image above, then moved to tablet displays they both had, since these were more practical for digging through heavy vector details. John even started tearing into the underlying code for the sensor feed application while Stina was boring into the database. It was taking time, so I just finished my meal, then went back to Gunnery to check on the diagnostics. Along the way, Dieter finally appeared, exiting engineering as I approached. Oh, hey, awake? Yeah, I slept in, I replied. Last to be revived, more like. Oh? Yep. And he gave me a tight smile. We just stared at each other for a moment. Boy, I'm hungry. And he pushed on past. I watched him go, feeling miffed. The gunner gets the least respect. Over and over I ran into this. Until the missiles were flying, we were so much dead weight. Then it was all, what do we do, what do we do? In a quasi-peace mission, it was only going to be worse. My diags were finished, and I noted a buggy recall on sensors. It was normal for things to be a bit off true after star jump, especially with brand new equipment. It would take an hour or two of recalibration, but was otherwise a simple fix. I reset everything to factory specs, then let it run some alignment scripts. On a job like this one, every single thing that you did had to be logged and verified, so I started on that part right away. In fact, I could see that the paperwork would be my single biggest time suck and wanted to get into a working routine so it didn't pile up. Chris, as ML, would have to check off on several of the reports I spat out and I didn't want to be handing him stuff that was post-dated. After that, I ran each weapon's self-test function. Gunnery relied on readiness. I needed to start simming hypothetical battle scenarios with the current data as soon as possible. This represented the situational status of the ship and its surroundings. If I got poor returns, I needed to be instantly sure the parameters I chose were at fault and not the equipment. 
It would take time, and each separate weapon system, including safeties and backups, had to be logged and manually signed off on, so that the customer, in this case United Humanity, could be absolutely sure that the gunner on their contracted mission had been personally aware of each and every variable in the equipment. There was also a vid feed of all my actions in gunnery that was being cached as a separate log file, to which no one aboard had access. This level of accountability was excessive, but UH had big clients of their own to answer to, nations and such, so they were enthusiastic I-dotters and T-crossers. That made me one, too. Still, this rankled me. It was a gunnery job, yes, and it was good pay. But no respect, never respect. We were in what could be seen as a hostile star system. Still, the gunner was the last to be awakened and the first to be forgotten. I just needed to get through this thing with a good recommendation. Then maybe I would move on to something in the training field, just like Siddle suggested. Something regular and well-paid. I had a plan, after all, and I sure wasn't going to let people with lousy attitudes... A call from Chris, up front, jumped into my field of view, and I had to collect myself before responding. We might have found something, Ejok. Can you come forward? We need an expert opinion. Uh, sure. Be right there. Expert? Hmm. Okay. Now I felt guilty. I turned my seat around to face the door and disconnected an input lead and a few monitor cables I'd plugged into my wrist comps so as to run some of my own Diag applications. I hit the door latch and got up. Maybe these guys weren't so bad. Then again, they only called because they wanted something. You have been listening to Risk Analysis, a science fiction novel written and read by David Collins Rivera. You can contact me at lostinbronx at gmail.com. That's L-O-S-T-N-B-R-O-N-X at gmail. You can also check out my site at cavalcadeaudio.com and sign up for my newsletter, where you'll find exclusive content and early releases. This story is copyright 2016 by the author and is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 4.0 international license. Feel free to use it for any purpose, even commercial, and I encourage you to do so. The Star Drifter theme is a piece called i by Trunks and can be found on SoundCloud.com. The theme for Risk Analysis is called The Inventor by Zach Beaver and is available on SoundCloud.com. Risk analysis is a work of fiction and is not based upon nor meant to portray any person, living or dead, nor any particular place or situation. Thank you for listening. Take care.